Good morning, everybody. Hi, um, welcome to the Texas Tribune <coughs> panel on accountability journalism now, otherwise known as investigative reporting, which I've been involved in uh, since the early 1980s. I've been an investigative reporter uh, starting at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, through now, I was uh, the executive editor, managing editor, and Washington bureau chief of the New York Times, and supervised uh, for a long time all of the paper's political investigations. Uh, I teach at Harvard now. I write a political column for The Guardian, and I'm trying to finish a book, which will be a common thread for many of the people on this panel. Uh, we are um, going to have questions, going to reserve 15 or 20 minutes at the end for your questions. You can see there's a microphone over there, and I think a handheld one that will be passed around too. So please don't be shy. Uh, but if you have a question, make sure it's a question and not a speech. Uh, this, is a, this is a fantastic panel that I'll introduce. Uh, to my immediate left is Joshua Green, uh, who is the world's leading expert on Steve Bannon. It's a dubious designation, yeah. Perhaps, but an important uh, designation. He's. Um, the, the lead political investigative uh, accountability writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. He did a fantastic cover story on Bannon, which became uh, the basis for his book, uh, The Devil's Bargain, uh, about Steve Bannon and the president, which has been a bestseller and uh, is a great background on their very interesting Bengali president type relationship. Uh, next to uh, Josh is Eli Stokel, uh, who is a member of the Wall Street Journal's White House team. Uh, he spent uh, years at, at Politico doing some great long investigative pieces for Politico's magazine, which is a real showcase for accountability journalism. Uh, Eli also had the pothole beat in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, and wor worked um, in television uh, uh, investigating important things. That, that's a big beat in Louisiana. And Josh, I should have mentioned, had a great background for covering this White House because he once worked at The Onion. Uh, um, Noted for our accountability yeah. journalism. Yeah. Um, Amy Chosek uh, is one of the chief political writers for the New York Times. Uh, I managed to lobby her hard and get her to come to the Times from the Wall Street Journal before the 2008 election, uh, where again, uh, I then plucked her to cover Hillary Clinton full time before she had even announced that she was running for president. Uh, and she has uh, written fantastic investigative pieces about 
the Clinton Foundation, other subjects. Uh, she has both a book and a baby in the oven, right? <laughs> <laughs> Bill's always breaking news. Um, uh, next to Amy is David Fahrenholt, who uh, did such <laughs> did um, such fantastic reporting, digging into uh, what he thought at the beginning uh, was Donald Trump's uh, charitable contributions, but which he quickly learned were the uh, donations of other people who had been strong-armed by Donald Trump. Uh, the, among the, the, the amazing things he hunted down during the, the 2016 campaign was the actual uh, six-foot portrait of Donald Trump that his foundation had paid to buy at a charity auction at Mar-a-Lago, uh, which was a chase that involved Twitter and amazing characters. But David, of course, deservedly won the Pulitzer Prize for his line of investigations during the election. Um, all of the, these faces should be recognizable to those of you who watch either MSNBC or CNN, uh, where they also share their wisdom. And uh, David and Josh will be signing their books after the panel, uh, and Amy would be if her book was done, and so, and, and, and so would Next I year. if my book was done. Anyway, I wanted to, to start out, I mean, the, this, this is a, a time where, you know, there's more investigative journalism being done on the Trump White House than I can remember ever reading with any president. And the, the, the teams that the New York Times, I think, has seven reporters assigned to the White House. Uh, the, the, the Washington Post, likewise. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has bulked up. I don't know about Bloomberg. Bloomberg has a lot of yeah. financial investigative reporters, um, Kushner and Trump and some of And deals. it's interesting at many of the major news organizations, there, there's a two-track system for doing investigative reporting. There's like a faster track because in the digital age, the news cycle moves so quickly and there's so much competition for these stories that you, know, you can't wait the usual weeks and months for a great piece to gestate. But then there are the longer deep dives too. Uh, and you know, I was curious, I'm now a consumer of all of this rather than someone who's ordering up the pieces, how each of you think you know, journalism and investigative work and accountability journalism is doing in terms of our key constitutional duty, which is to hold power accountable. Uh, is that happening and is, is, is our work reaching the people who it needs to reach? Josh. 
Oh, I get to go first. <laughs> and oh. then we're going to go down the line. No, I, I don't know how popular an answer this will be because a lot of the feedback I get through Twitter and email is is along the lines of you know you die be, now. You, well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the more thoughtful criticism is you know you guys in the press didn't do your job. You know Hillary didn't win. Trump was elected. Um, I, I think that the press, by and large, at least the print press, has done a fairly good job. Um, before, but especially after Trump was elected, in pushing the kind of accountability journalism that you really want to see um, from the press. I mean, I Why do you think during the campaign, not as much, but after he became president, why that dichotomy? I so I am. I'm not a, a, a Clinton partisan who believes that the press is responsible for Trump's right. victory. But I, I do think that you know an argument can be made that there was so much focus on her emails um, that it began to seem uh, to an ordinary reader as though you know her set of issues was somehow equivalent to Trump's set of issues. And I think that that. Um, was not accurate at the mm -hmm. time, and, and so I'm a little open to that. But then everyone redoubled efforts after the surprise election results. Oh no, no question yeah. about it. Um, partly, I think because people, including people in the press, I don't think really believed that Trump would ever get elected, and it wasn't right. as though there was a lack of investigation. Just look at David's work during the campaign and a lot of other journalists, but. Uh, the fact that he was and that he was so uh, manifestly unqualified for the job according to you know, any, any previous criteria we had for U.S. presidents and that he'd refused to release his taxes and had all sorts of uh, shady foreign business entanglements, I think, sounded a kind of alarm in, in press rooms everywhere. Uh, and I think the press has responded by diving in and investigating a lot of these things. Um, just at Bloomberg, you know, we specialize in financial journalists and we put together a team of I think 20 people around the globe looking at just Jared Kushner's uh, financial entanglements. He owns a big building on Fifth Avenue with a mortgage coming due. It's not clear he can pay. Um, one of the reasons that he was meeting with questionable Russian bankers and, and, and people like that seems to be tied to that. So we used all our resources as a financial reporting company to go in and, and really illuminate what was there. And it was a piece that shocked a lot of I folks, and I think, it, and I think right. added a real perspective to um, why it is that Kushner and other people in Trump's orbit are uh, meeting with some very unsavory characters. So you couldn't imagine showing up in any, any earlier Oval Office. Eli, how about from the journal's perspective? Uh, how, how well um, are we doing? Well, I'll, just, I'll share my personal perspective as someone who covered the campaign day in and day out and then is covering this White House. Uh, and you ask yourself those questions um, almost every day in terms of are we doing our job the right way. I think Donald Trump uh, as a candidate and now as a president presents challenges that uh, more conventional politicians just didn't. And you weren't always sort of in this constant uh, almost existential crisis as a political journalist asking yourself, are we doing this right? Because I think there has been tremendous journalism throughout the campaign, throughout the first eight months of the presidency, um, telling the public things that they would not otherwise know about the investigation, about the inner workings of this White House or the dysfunction of this White House. Um, and that is all there. Uh, and I think it's to the credit of all the people covering all of this that, that so much is known. It's also in part because of a president who just makes his feelings there, puts them out there for everybody to see on Twitter. I mean, I don't think anybody's ever really had 
such an unvarnished view of the actual thoughts of the president as we do now with, with at real Donald Trump. Um, but also, every morning we have to check. Somebody on our White House team wakes up every morning, and it's their responsibility to check tweets. We have we have phone we have you know uh, settings on our phone where we, if he tweets, we get an alert. It wakes us up. You have to file a story. And it's the worst in, way to wake up. It's a, it's not a good way to wake up. <laughs> <laughs> and I also I don't I don't know if that's a great way uh, to do journalism I, because I, it's reactive. Well, it, it is reactive, and I think a lot of the coverage to Trump has always been reactive, and that's one of the reasons that um, that he's succeeded. You take a lot of David's reporting on the foundation. That's not reactive, right? That's that's setting uh, setting up your mind to do something and and digging into it, but. In this huge sea of news and information that we have coming at us from uh, from this president, it's difficult for people to find anything, any one story to sort of latch onto. I think overall we've done a fairly decent job of accountability journalism, and it's hard to measure because sometimes it doesn't seem like you know we can put the stories out there and you can see he takes office with a 40% approval rating. He's sitting eight months later even with the Russia investigation, even with no legislative accomplishments. His base at 40%. is clearly, you know, so his, there are a his lot of people. comment that he could shoot a gun down Fifth Avenue right. and people would still, his base would still stick with him appears to be. Right, I think so. the, the couple things I would say is, is, you know, initially because this was so abnormal, there was a lot of fixation on, um, oh my God, what's going on in this White House? There were stories like, Donald Trump and his people don't know what they're doing. They can't find the light switches. This person's mad at this person. It was very reality TV and kind of shocking. And Which there was he, a lot of pressure to sort of match those sort of stories. We call them TikToks or um, you know, the minute by minute, like what is happening this week or what led to this decision. And a lot of juicy details would come out. And those juicy details are fun to read uh, in a way. Uh, fun is, I guess, sort of I call those subjective. But, but people would like reading these tidbits and feel like they're inside the room. We all strive to, to find those things out and put them in our stories so they're sprinkled with, with amusing or interesting details. Um, I don't know that that's all that valuable. valuable anymore because I think everybody who looks at this White House knows that it's a little bit different. Uh, it is a little bit of a circus. It is a little bit of a reality show. You know, it's, it's like on the TV show when they interview the people after the, the date on The Bachelor and they're sitting there and they're talking to the producer. It's like you know everybody's actual inner thoughts because there's not a producer there, but everybody's leaking. So you know that this person doesn't really like this person and what they say publicly isn't actually true. And that's great, but it's not necessarily all that valuable or important. So I think we've seen a, a shift maybe away from some of those stories uh, but there, I think, could be more stories. There's a great ProPublica uh, pro story a, a couple weeks ago about uh, Ben Carson at HUD and what is happening or not happening there. And that is a really deeply reported story, uh, but sometimes it doesn't get the pickup, it doesn't get amplified by cable news because it's not about Russia. Uh, it doesn't, it's not about you know, Congress melting down. And those are the sort of things, you know, what is Scott Pruitt doing at the EPA? Those are the things that I think more focus on uh, would serve us well across the board and I think lastly you know you have to be you have to step back out of what you're doing every day and I think think about these bigger questions because you have to recognize that this is a president who short of legislative achievements needs foils needs what I mean how does he keep his base locked in it's it's based on this Lock sort of her up. He this was shared just antipathy on that again and, and last resistance night. and grievances against who 
for a while it was Hillary Clinton, sometimes it's still Hillary Clinton. Yeah, Over the weekend, right. now it's Steph Curry, it's Colin Kaepernick, it's whoever sort of helps foment the culture wars, but most of all, it's us, it's the media. And he insulates himself from blame by getting enough people to sort of not trust anything that the media says, points to media actor, media you know, reporters who get up and sort of grandstand or are argumentative. Um, and we all have to be cognizant about the way we're doing our job, the way we're talking about this yeah. on television, because any sort of mistake, they will seize on it, and they will say, see, you're fake news. And yeah, that's really D something Dean we've Beckett never had to and deal Lamarck's with before. At, you know, a, a, a gathering much like this said that was very important to not create an appearance that we, journalism, is the opposition party. And I think that that that's true. That's right. There are a lot of people who too. just don't want to be condescended to by an elite media, right. and and they won't buy anything that we're we're reporting, even if it's deeply reported and sourced, um, and 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 matched by a lot of competitors. Um, that is one of the things that keeps that base locked in. I think we all have to be cognizant about not just the reporting we're doing, but how we're presenting it, how we're talking about it, uh, because we are and in a, in a different time. And tweeting about it. And tweeting about it. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, but they're not. Um, Amy, I, I would love in in your swipe at at the question for you to also address because um, Amy, I think, knows. Hillary Clinton as well as any reporter that that I know and you know in what happened uh, Hillary Clinton's best-selling new book she you know makes very pointed direct uh, criticisms at the New York Times suggesting that the Times going back to the early investigation of the Whitewater um, real estate inv in investment, that the news editors of the Times actually have a vendetta against her. And you know, I just, I, 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 you, you've, you know, been on leave, absorbing all, all, all the coverage, and now absorbing what she's said. And I just wonder. What what you think of that? Uh, yeah, it's, it goes deep into Clinton psychology, and I think you know, in the most unpredictable election year possibly ever, one sort of foregone conclusion I think was that Hillary Clinton was going to be disappointed in the way the political press, and particularly the New York Times, covered her. I think we could be on a panel discussing President Hillary Clinton's you know animus towards the media. And what's been really interesting about covering her is that it's never it wasn't it started way before the server, way before Donald Trump, way before 2016 um, and the Russians. It started, as Jill said, in the 1990s, right when the Clintons came on the national stage. Um, you know, it's fascinating. The, the rivalry started with Hal Raines, who was running Washington and political coverage during the Bill Clinton years. He was from the South, and Bill Clinton was convinced that there was this sort of white man, southerner, of you know, fierce competitiveness, and that Hal basically wanted to take them down. So you, you go to 1992, uh, invest, very good investigative reporter named Jeff Gerth breaks a story about a land deal in the Ozark River in Arkansas that the Clintons lost money on. So Hillary uses the same term she uses with the uh, private email server, a big nothing burger, right? Um, this leads, of course, to the Whitewater investigation, to Ken Starr, to Paula Jones, ultimately to Monica Lewinsky and impeachment. And so when Hillary Clinton enters 2016, especially when my colleague Mike Schmidt breaks the private email server. She immediately went back to that reflective impulse of the 90s. Um, you know, I heard that when she was talking to her team about how to handle it, she's like, "We need a Carville." She was making all these 90s references. Her campaign manager Robbie Mook was like in middle school during the 90s. You know? 
I hadn't even gotten to the Daily Texan yet. So, uh, so there was a lot, I mean, there is a lot about Hillary that you have to go back to the 90s. Um, Jill will remember the story better than anyone. I think it wasn't just Whitewater, but the way that the Times covered her as a very unusual first lady, fascinating, but unusual first lady, you know, the first working mother in the White House, and, and also a real intellectual who had a um, very sort of new agey, spiritual, uh, you know, she's a, she's a very devoted Methodist, and she gave a speech right here in Austin in 1994, uh, Politics of Meaning, if you ever look it up online, it's a fascinating speech, in which I think she speaks about her own real, it was, it was one of the best glimpses into what she really believed. She talks about a crisis of meaning in the country, um, the Times runs a magazine cover story called, it's infamous, The St. Hillary Story. Um, Hillary's on the front wearing white, and it's incredibly, I think the tone is pretty condescending. It's pretty, like, makes her out to seem very sanctimonious and, frankly, weird. And the backlash just continue, I mean, just completely scarred her. I mean, I heard that she, she wore white, of course, when she won the nomination, but she didn't wear white for years. She had been so scarred by this magazine cover that made her St. Hillary. Um, and the but the, the suffragette symbolism yeah. brought it back. It was fascinating. Campaign. She brought it back because it was what the, the color of suffragettes. But when she got on stage, having kind of been steeped in this Hillary history, I also saw, oh, she's reclaiming the St. Hillary. You know? And she actually used some of those lines. When she talked about love and kindness in this campaign, she got a little bit mocked. But that was like a hint of the kind of original New Agey spiritual Methodist, real social gospel Hillary that was sort of, you know, she was, she, she went back into her protective armor after that. Um, and so, you know, yeah, she enters, so she, even in 2008, she felt like the Times was easy on Obama, gave Obama a pass, harder on her. Um, she's an incredibly avid reader of the Times. I would get calls from her press team saying, why isn't that story above the fold? I mean, like a print, you know, <laughs> real print subscriber. Um, well, you know, Trump is too. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and what's fascinating about the Clintons is that they have managed to make friends with reporters who were horrible to them. Christopher Ruddy, David Brock was an infamous right-wing hitman, but they had this kind of come-to-Jesus moment, and the Clintons accepted them. They're, they're friends with the Clintons now. But there's something about the Times, I think that they believe that the Times should have been more supportive, should have overlooked things. Um, they believed that their politics aligned, and so that they should have, they could never forgive the Times. Um, and even before, and Hillary sort of predicted exactly what she wrote about and what happened, um, right after the, she started her campaign and the email story wouldn't go away, which I think was, as you mentioned, compounded by cable news. Um, but she said, I know exactly what's going to happen. The Times is going to give me the biggest wet kiss of an endorsement. They're going to say I'd make an amazing president, and they're absolutely going to hammer me on the emails. So this was, you know, two years before the election. Um, it, so in other words, a very much a foregone conclusion. I mean, one thing, I, th I think that we did do some really great investigative work on Trump during the campaign, but I think it started late. Um, I think he had to win the nomination for us to take him seriously. And then I think that there were a million different things. I mean, there's so many targets. You know, you got Trump University. You've got his treatment of women, the foundation, uh, which you were amazing at. Um, but there were all of these different, his taxes. Well, the Times did fantastic work on Paul Manafort. Mm -hmm. Terrific work on Paul Manafort. And also, we got his tax returns before anybody that showed that he hadn't paid taxes in years. So I think there were all of these different narratives in terms of Trump investigating. With Hillary, it was really just the emails. I mean, a Clinton Foundation story here or there. But it really was emails. And so I think that one kind of clear thing resonated in people's minds. Um, and then when you had John Podesta's emails be hacked, it was just more emails. You know, I think about like 
the waitress in Ohio I talked to. She's not covering every intricacy of like Hillary skirting federal records requests and what did James Comey say. All she knows is like the TV's on in the background and she's hearing emails. Um, and so that I think is what was yeah. The most I guess what what um, troubled me in um, her critique of the Times, yeah. which is pointed. I mean, mm -hmm. she sets the Times in a different category than the rest of yes. the press, is this idea that the news editors were, you know, stacked against her, which, yeah, you know, just for the record, since I directed the political coverage of the Clintons going back forever, I was fired and gone by the time um, the 2016 campaign came around. But, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous but it and nonsense. It was interesting for me to see that it didn't matter who was in the role. When you were leading coverage, it was oh Jill versus Hill, and she hates Hillary because they're both powerful women breaking you know breaking their own ceilings. And then when Dean stepped in, it was Dean hates Hillary. He covered Arkansas. He was in Arkansas doing investigations in the '90s when he was a reporter. It was interesting that whoever was in that role became the reciprocal for oh they hate Hillary. They have a grudge. Um, what was interesting to me in the book is she has a very lengthy and and frankly, very well done chapter on the Russia investigation. And she cites the Times investigation for, uh, you know, we want a Pulitzer for our work on, on Russia meddling in foreign elections. She extensively cites the Times investigative work. So she quite likes the Times investigative work when it is not uh, targeted at her. Right, that's true. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but before I turn to, to David, who will probably recognize uh, what, what I'm about to say, I mean, Trump. Too, uh, you know, holds the Times and sort of because he's a New York guy, you know, and and while you know his mo when he was you know in the real estate business was the tabloid press in New York, you know, covered every date he had and all, all of his uh, antics. But he actually came to the Times uh, for a publisher's lunch when I was managing editor, and he brought his son Donald, and you, he, he, he just was in awe, you know, and uh, it was obvious to me that he cares a lot and was kind of desperate for some kind of recognition and approval from the the times and i you know i've been told that that still is somewhat true but david farenholt had um the good fortune of working for an editor marty baron at the post who is wired to dig and dig and dig and you know get the real story out to readers and and the public, he was you know you you all probably know the the editor in the movie Spotlight at the Boston Globe who ran the investigation of the Catholic Church in in Boston. But you know David you know be, began looking at the Trump Foundation and you know was basically let let loose to to keep going by Marty and. I should also note that the Post, you know, published uh, before the election. Uh, Marty Baron assembled a team, and David was was part of it, and they produced 
an excellent book that was called Trump Reveal that was an aggregation of all of the best investigative reporting that had been done up to about September. So this idea that you know the, the, the news media somehow didn't look at Trump is, is a, a canard. And you know David helped uh, get the real story to the public. But you've sort of been on book leave some on, since then. But how, how do you think it's but, going now? Uh, well, we miss you. Well, uh, it's, so it, this was the world's easiest book to write. And then it was mostly just stuff that I'd written last year that they put in book form. Uh, so the, the thing that's been, so I've been doing Trump. Well, don't book. say that. You're going to be signing. Come on. Still you quiet. This, it's wonderful. You, you, it's, it's got all kinds of untold all profits things will go to charity. in it. Uh, um, so the thing that I, I think is interesting, um, it's been interesting to watch the transformation, was I think we came into this election with kind of a, an expectation that I'm not sure we were really conscious of the fact that this was just a tradition and not the natural way of things, which was that if a politician did something shameful, they themselves would show you how shameful it was because they would talk about it for days at a time. There was a whole cycle they'd go through. They'd, they'd lie, they'd say they didn't do it, and then they'd, they'd try to minimize the fact that they did it, then they'd sort of apologize, and if that wasn't enough, they'd apologize again. And that would, that would take over cable news, and the campaign would shrink down to just that thing. So think about Mitt Romney and the 47%, um, or a number of other things where Whatever this, you know, it was possible to write a political story big enough, or uh, an investigative story big enough, or there, for there to be a gaffe or a, mis a, a mistake so big that, like, it would once you sort of you throw the rock in the pond, and then there'd be ripples, and that would be the ripples would be the, the story for days afterward. And so, in this election, Hillary followed that playbook perfectly with the emails. How many times did she sort of minimize it, say it wasn't a big deal, apologize for it, apologize again? But it was the only thing, as you said. It I'm was, sorry it's confused people. That yeah, was my favorite yeah, apology. Yeah, I'm sorry it's confused people, right. <laughs> it, like, it, it became, it, you know, she showed you, she followed that playbook. Trump doesn't. He never did. So he'd say something about, you know, John McCain, I, don't, I like people who weren't captured. So, you know, which, it, like, would have killed anybody else because they would have stopped to minimize it and talk about it and apologize for it. It would have become the story. Instead of doing that, Trump just does something outrageous the next day. And then we're getting spun up to cover yesterday's outrage, and he's on to the next thing. And it, we were un, unequipped to do the deal with a candidate who was like that. Um, since David, since you broke the story about that notorious access Hollywood tape, were you surprised that that you know didn't like no the opposite? The I, I thought the, I thought it was not going to be a because Trump wow. had sort of skated through so many things. I thought it was going to be a one day story or something. And, it, and actually that. Part of that, that story actually shocked people enough that some Republicans pulled away from Trump. If you remember Jason Chaffetz, who was the uh, government oversight chair for the, the Republican from Utah, he was like, that's it, I'm out. I can't look at my 14-year-old daughter in the face again if I support this man. And there were people who did that in the first few days afterward. And, and where so much of this campaign had been like, no one was shocked by what Trump was doing. Everybody just kept continuing on. People actually were shocked by it in a way that surprised me. Um, but only briefly. Uh, and, I, and people like Jason Chaffetz came back to the fold and was an enthusiastic right. supporter of Trump's. So I was surprised. Well, the they watched the polls. Right. And so but then he's also quit Congress. He's quit Congress. And there are a lot of retirements. So right. people are grappling with it. Right. Yeah. It just I feel like the thing that we're getting better at, and I've tried to be sort of focused on this, is like we can't expect anymore that the, that the unwritten thing at the end of our stories is like, okay, aren't you shocked by this? You know, like that there's something that's big enough that we can restart the old cycle and people and 
Congress and TV news and everybody else will focus down on this one thing and it will become the story. It's up to us. To, if we think a story is important, you can't just write the first thing and sort of like watch the ripples. You have to keep pushing it every day. You know, keep giving readers a thread to follow so they can keep up with what's going on, keep well, chasing whatever it is. I mean, a problem, too, is that the ripples themselves are atomized now. Mm -hmm. So, so that, things. you know, ripples from some of your stories, they get, you know, echoed on MSNBC and CNN, but don't reach, you know, conservative uh, audience. And I was on Fox once. After Access Hollywood, and that's when I got a death threat after I'm from some oh, guy in Milwaukee. So, so uh, but Fox <laughs> so no. helped me reach that guy, uh -huh. so I'm thankful for that. Okay, <laughs> excellent. Ne never waste uh, right. a sourcing opportunity. Right. But um, Josh, because you became expert in Bannon and this base, uh, talk talk to all of us a little bit about. You know, now that Bannon's back at Breitbart, sort of where, like, where the base is going, where Bannon wants to take it. You know, is it away from the president and his agenda? Uh, what 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 is is going on with the so-called? alt-right or alt-light and... Well, and I, I think it was pivoting off the accountability journalism discussion. One of the insights Bannon had that attracted me to him originally as a subject was he thought that um, you know, there was a way to kind of hack the mainstream media to get story, stories and storylines he wanted in there. And I think he also understood at the same time that you could use Breitbart News and this whole vast right-wing media infrastructure uh, to in Donald Trump to essentially go and discredit mainstream media reporters to such a degree that a large swath of American voters just wouldn't listen or pay attention. I think it's one of the other challenges we haven't talked about with accountability journalism is a lot of us are out here doing this, and yet it seems to me as it's though it's having less of an effect than it would have 10 years ago, 20, for yeah. exactly that reason. Um, as far as Bannon and where he goes now, I, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see. Um, he, he clearly is frustrated by the way that the Trump administration has turned out. He gave an interview, annoyingly not to me, I don't know if it was a weekly stand or whoever, after he left, saying, uh, you know, the, the, the Trump presidency that we elect, you know, is over. And I think what he meant by that is the idea that Trump would come in and impose uh, these nationalist policies. That was sort of the deal between Trump and Ben. Mm -hmm. That is the devil's bargain in the title of my book, just to get a plug in there, um, was, was not going to work out. And so Bannon is on the outside now. Um, I'm going to be interested to see what happens, but it seems pretty clear to me that Bannon thinks I mean, of himself. I mean, he also badly, and I know this from from your reporting in your book. He wanted to smash the elites, the typical. Yeah, I mean, a part of that is is bluster and propaganda because it's effective in motivating Trump's voters. But I think what's happening now is that there's a split opening up that it always existed over the last few years in the Republican Party between. The nationalist crowd that Bannon and Trump represented in the establishment, um, there was going to be, if Hillary had won, there's going to be a big civil war in the Republican Party the day after the election. Mm -hmm. These guys are going to fight. And because Trump won and because Republicans controlled Congress, it didn't happen. It was suddenly in everybody's best interest to get along. And the establishment crowd thought that Trump would sign their tax cuts into law. And the nationalists thought that they would won and they could you know, deport everybody and, and, and do that whole thing. Uh, and it turned out they really couldn't do anything for anybody. So Bannon's on the outside now. And I think what he's going to try and do is, or what he's already trying to do is start up that fight again. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, the, the, the first battle in that fight is going to come next week in Alabama, Alabama yeah. in the Republican Senate race where uh, Bannon has gone and endorsed a guy I actually spent a lot of time with 10 years ago, Roy Moore, the Ten Commandments mm -hmm. judge, who is running against Trump's endorsed candidate for Senate there. Um, Bannon is doing this very publicly. He's using Breitbart as a kind of uh, you know, propaganda right. mechanism to build up his guy. And if Moore wins, which I think a lot of the internal polling and some of the public polling suggests is going to happen, then I think you're going to see him try and exert his influence <laughs> in other Republican Trump was primaries. there supposedly to endorse and speak on behalf of <laughs> Luther Strange last night and spent most of the time, again, ranting about crooked Hillary and reliving Right, but then also the came out and said, look, if, 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 if Luther Strange loses, the guy I'm standing it's next fine. to endorsing, I'm going to yeah. go ahead and, and I'll campaign <laughs> for his opponent. Right. And so. I guess I, I, I was I was here, not there, but I read I read something that effect on Twitter, which is not mm -hmm. the level of sourcing, you know, but, but probably, <laughs> probably true. Uh, but yeah, there's clearly, I mean, there's a big fight opening up between, between um, the, the Breitbart wing right. that was so powerful in elevating mm -hmm. Trump and supporting him, uh, and, and, and Trump in the White House as it's now constituted right. with the quote-unquote globalists um, that Bannon rails against. But it's interesting because it's, 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 it, it seems to me that there's going to be a big question. Are, is Trump's base loyal to Trump? Or are they loyal to the ideas Trump ran on and hasn't really implemented, which Bannon is going to be pushing from the outside? I'm not, I'm not sure we know the answer yet. Great story. So. Eli, where do you think um, Mueller and the Russia investigation are going? Like, what, what, what's the trail? And if you have a sense of where it's leading, it would be, I know you're all over it. I, I think the focus is Trump himself. And I think there are different ways to get at that. I think Manafort is obviously a huge focus, and, and Michael Flynn. Uh, but Jared Kushner, I mean, everybody sort of one degree of separation. Well, waves. Kushner is unlikely to flip on his father-in-law. Most likely right? not to flip. It seems like if they're trying to flip somebody, it's Manafort. Um, but just Donald Trump, uh, and a lot of journalists have made this point, has acted throughout this presidency not like a person with a completely clean conscience. Um, he, I mean, you saw, you, you know, the decision to fire Comey, the, the, the attempt to cultivate Comey early on, uh, all the tweeting, which seems to stop, but initially referring to it as a witch hunt. Um, there's just so much agitation, right? He's not a person who has a lot of self-restraint. Um, and <laughs> news so, flash. So, I've been told understatement is a useful tool when uh, talking about certain things. I, 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 I don't know where it's going. I mean, I think that you can tell that the, the people that they are hiring, the hiring white-collar crime lawyers and experts, mm -hmm. um, th this is a very serious, serious thing. And I think that, that we talk about the efforts that this president and the people around him have made to discredit mm -hmm. us as, as mainstream media. Right. You see a similar effort with Mueller uh, and Comey and anybody else who is going to be critical to this investigation to try to discredit them uh, in the public eye. And I think that this investigation, when it comes to a climax, will really test the, the notion of accountability as applied to Donald Trump. Because we can do accountability journalism, and Bob Mueller can do right. an investigation aimed at holding uh, Trump, his campaign officials, his family, everybody to account. Uh, but this is a person who I think it's fair to say throughout his life, his life has been a story of someone who 
has never really been fully held accountable, whether it's for stiffing subcontractors right. and not paying his bills, for the things that David reported about, I mean, on and on and on, even through the election. So, so I read an interesting investigative piece just the other day that speaks to your point that says that you know part of the reason that he asked everybody to leave when he talked to Comey um, about um, deep sixing the Flynn investigation was that he, throughout his career, has been so careful to not leave his own fingerprints, so mm -hmm. that so it will always be his word against one other person. I and thought I just, that yeah, was I think the test will be whatever they come back with. Um, do people believe yeah, it? Yeah, right. Uh, the, you know, 60% of the country that doesn't support him right now will probably believe it. But what about the other 40%? What about your guy in Wisconsin? Or what about these swing voters that we all fly around the country and talk to in these 10 critical states who? are just the, the, the smallest swath of voters who tend to dictate which way American politics go, what will their view be? And that's what the sort of, you know, the PR battle right now in terms of trashing Mueller and Comey um, and the leaks coming from the, the investigation and, and from those people about this is where we're going, trying to explain to the public, here's, here's mm -hmm. where this is going. So they have, that's sort of Amy, what do you have like a sense of you're about to, Jump back in, I guess, to the to the chase at at some point where. Been, yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting to see uh, where people predict Russia is going because it's very much a prism for you know what you think the country is and what you think of Trump. I mean, there are people who think you know this is nothing, this is a witch hunt. You know, the Fo the Fox News viewers, and then there are people. Well, he calls it a hoax well, exactly. in his tweets. Fake news, a hoax, uh, you know, and then there are the people, you know, the people in New York I know who say, oh, he's going to get impeached, and or Hillary's going to, you know, pro the election results are going to get thrown out. I mean, they have really, I think both sides have sort of interpreted this story through their own prism of political bias, and that's a danger that I think we all as consumers have is that we very much consume the news that fits with our own biases and the and bifurcation in the media industry well, that's, has allowed us to do that. That's, I think, cultural bifurcation. Before um, getting last words from David, I think that's a frustration for investigative journalists who spend so much time trying to get the real facts, dig them out, fact check them, but that, you know, you, you wonder you know about the the impact of your work now because the the whole news media architecture is so atomized right now and so polarized and and partisan so it it's painful to see one's work dismissed as a hoax i would think david yes yes uh, but I, it is <laughs> but i feel like the 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 answer that I've tried to do, the way I've tried to answer that is to sort of try to be public about showing my work, you know, how I do what I'm doing. Talk for a second about how you use Twitter, just in, as part of your investigative reporting process. So it's I interesting. So I do it for two, re two, two, two things with it. One, to give people a thread to follow. So if you, if you care about what I'm writing about, but you've, you've been gone a couple of days or you've been distracted by something else, you can come back and see that I'm, you know, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to give you like little steps along the way to the actual stories. Um, so that's why I've used note, like written notepads. I can show you sort of visually on this notepad, here's how my work is progressing, here's who I've called. Um, just so you, people can keep interested and they can keep sort of following along what I'm doing and, and not lose the thread. And I try to produce content that's like aimed explicitly at people who've forgotten what I did last, right? Not a new story as much as like, 
Are you confused about charities quitting Mar-a-Lago? Here, read this. Read these four questions and you'll catch up and understand. That's one thing. But the other thing is I'm trying to use it to bring in information. Trump's, his, his whole MO with his foundation I found last year and with his, his company that I found this year is that he tries to make himself the only arbiter of fact. Right? The only way you can know about me is to ask me personally and have me to trust whatever I tell you. Not my spokesman even. Trust me. Um, which is, that means he won't, if he doesn't want the story to get out, he won't say anything. But for me, there's, in both cases, there's answers about Trump and his business and his charity. It's just that they're, they're, they're distributed among a whole bunch of other people who've done business with him. And so part of my job is to try to reach those people who know something about what Trump has done in the past and so I can assemble sort of the facts of his career without having to depend on him. So I did a few things last year and this year where I've said, look, I'm trying to find examples of X. Um, you know, if you've seen it, you know, the, last year was, it was um, the portrait that you mentioned that Trump had bought of himself with money from his charity. Where is it? This year we had this example where um, Trump had put up fake Time Magazine covers of himself. Uh, <laughs> and it, so, you know, where are those things? Has anybody seen them? Like, that's the thing. Where you, before, you have to hire freelancers to go to all these places and see where, you know, get into Trump's clubs. Some of them are private. You couldn't get in them. Now, if I say that, you get all this response of people who are like, oh, I was at the Westchester Club last week. Here it is in the men's room. You know, here, I was in Mar-a-Lago. Here's a picture of it. Like, it, 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 it takes a lot of work, and you have to be careful of being hoaxed, and you also have to wade through a lot of, like, crap mm -hmm. of people responding unhelpfully. But you, there's a way to find these things that, as, as a tr traditional methods of journalism, don't give you, like, a first step to get there. Um, but if you sort of throw it out there, you can find that readers know things that you, you didn't know. A brief story, my, my most amazing example of that was we found out from, from uh, documents that Trump had, the Trump Foundation had once made a $7 donation to the Boy Scouts. Like a, the Trump Foundation had granted the, the Boy Scouts $7 in 1989. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out why. I mean, the Boy Scouts wouldn't talk to me. Trump wouldn't talk to me. I thought, well, this is like an unknowable fact. It has disappeared into the midst of history. I'll never know why this happened. And so I just posted on Twitter as kind of an amusing thing. Like, hey, everybody, look at this. We'll never know what happened, but there's got to be a funny story. And within 30 minutes, a reader had figured out by looking at old newspaper clips that $7 is what it cost to register your son for the Boy Scouts in 1989. The year that Tom Jr. turned 11, $7 to register your son for the whole year. So like a man who had just written a book saying he had more money than he could, knew what to do with and used the charity's <laughs> money to sign his son up for the Boy Scouts. Like, that, that sort of thing, I just didn't know how to start. And the readers did, though. And so that, that's been really helpful. Right. I, I have been a, 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 a terrible moderator in terms of leaving enough time for questions. But, but now, now is the time, and yeah. there is the microphone. And then, is there a handheld one too? Or yes, you, Charles has it. Why don't you go to this side since the actual microphone? Like, come over. And how, how much time do we have? We've got about eight minutes. Eight minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, so succinct questions. Uh, and I'll, I'll repeat the questions, but it, it would be good if I could hear them with a microphone. Anyway, okay. Um, how about, oh, okay. Huh? I sat directly okay. here for a reason. So. Um, I had a question. So the day after the James Comey uh, email investigation leaked, uh, the New York Times posted a huge, massive thing about the emails coming out once again. Um, I've talked to plenty of friends, family, who refused to vote for Hillary Clinton because they felt 
that both sides were just as equally horrible. So what kind of responsibility does the press have for a false equivalency that we see in journalism? The, the question was, is the press responsible for um, a false equivalency between Clinton and Trump? Uh, well, that New York Times page the day after the letter, I mean, that certainly shows up in my Twitter feed a lot by people, you know, upset, thinking that the Times sort of overplayed it. I think we had a, a large photo and three, three accompanying stories. Um, you know, I think there is a definite danger in journalism in terms of false equivalency. I mean, this goes back to something that really frustrated President Obama it would always talk about his, his number one media critique would be like, you know, you don't have to write about climate change and then find the guy who says that it's not, you know, journalists sometimes do that. I think it's a little bit lazy. It's like, let's find the two sides and then we have a balanced story. Um, you know, the most, the, the kind of clearest issue would be, I think, climate change. You know, the, the early way that we covered it. We'll find somebody who says it's true. We'll find someone who says it's not and we've got a story. Um, I think with Hillary, some of the criticism about false equivalence feels like well, her opponent was so beyond the pale and so bad that we really should have looked the other way that a leading presidential candidate was under FBI investigation. Um, I actually very much agree that we should do some soul searching about the volume of email coverage and why it overtook policy. I have lots of thoughts on why as some of them were, a lot of them were the media's fault, some of them were the campaign not putting Hillary on the phone when we requested interviews about policy and, you know, um, but Trump would get on the phone, you know, to discuss anything, but, but I also think, including whether I thought Schwarzenegger would be as good as him on The Apprentice, but that's another. Um, but, but I think the fault, a lot of the Hillary supporters who are angry, I think that that is a dangerous dynamic for journalists to decide, whether it's Hillary Clinton or anyone else, that the, her opponent is so bad, you know, so beyond the pale, has done so many shady things, that like this one kind of big story in another election year, but given that she's running against this guy, like we should overlook that. I think that's a dangerous dynamic. We have to cover the news, she was under FBI investigation, that's a big story. Um, but yes, I do, I also think we have to be careful of like, I find this voice and this voice and then it's balanced. Um, there were some, there were like specific stories that the Clinton campaign complained about that during the campaign and I thought they had a good point. Like, like Trump would insult John McCain and Hillary would have some kind of gaffe, you know, just like accidental gaffe. And we weaved it all into one story of like, both candidates are struggling to, make up for their, you know, missteps. And those were not equivalent, you know, those were not equivalent missteps. I think it was, it was, I forgot exactly what it was. I think it was Hillary's coal miner comment and something Trump had said, who knows, <laughs> maybe. But, but throwing those into like one daily story, acting, presenting them as if they were the same level of, you know, political Important, mistake, I think right. is a, it's a somewhat lazy way of presenting, presenting the case. Yeah. I think that the great failure of investigative journalism is believing that uh, the hoax story is started when Donald Trump became elected or, start, or, or entered the nomination. That throughout the Obama years, the, the uh, momentum was already building in terms of Fox News being taken as fact and nothing from the mainstream media countering these facts. So there are people who believe uh, day after day that there would be some kind of crisis. Um, veteran, uh, 
people in the military getting killed, and Obama never said he was sorry to the families of the people who were killed. Or so what's, so, what's your question? So the question is, how does journalism need to adapt to say that the reporting or the media on the right or the Republican Party that puts out things that are false, that that has to become a story of investigation as well? Um, it, can, can I take a, a, a first crack at that? Because I just want to point out that it took a lot of um, manpower, but the, the Times published like literally a, a list, hundreds of them, of Trump's lies, uh, each one scrupulously fact-checked, uh, evidence made transparent. To, to readers and you, you have, but you have to be willing but you, you have to be willing as a reader to accept what the media is telling you what's been so dismaying this election cycle is the number of people who aren't willing so so some of the people you're talking about can't be convinced and the media can't convince them because they've chosen to close their minds to facts to objective reporting uh, it, it's a problem but I'm not sure it's one that the media can solve well, as Jill just said, yeah, it's, it, I, it's a story everywhere except on Fox News. I mean, if people self-segment and only watch Fox News, they're just not going to come around to your way of thinking about things. Um, two more questions. No, two, minutes. two minutes. Two minutes. Okay. If, you, if you go quickly, that, that's, that's questions. So um, you, you've had your hand up for ages and ages. So. Hi. Sorry. Um, I'll just get right to the chase. Uh, do you think that political satire, like pieces from John Oliver, have increased Americans' understanding of complex policy issues and political scandals? I'm going to turn to to Josh just because as, as with the former his, satirist, his, uh, his, uh, his layer of onion background. My very succinct answer is uh, yes, absolutely, yeah. because it reaches a crowd of people who may not be the kind of people that read the New York Times, but might listen to John Oliver, and it convinces them. Not just satire, but people like Jimmy Kimmel, who surprisingly to me turned out to be instrumental in, in stopping healthcare. the latest uh, the latest uh, healthcare proposal. So absolutely, I think there's an uh, inverse to that too, where we're sort of entertainment and our politics and our government become almost indistinguishable from one another. A lot of people are consuming news about this presidency in part because they find it so shocking and amazing, just like for the same reasons that they watch other you know, television to consume other things that are not journalism. And so that is a challenge because, yes, Saturday Night Live may tell people something, John Oliver may tell people something about this administration in a way that makes it make sense to them, but I think the the, the mm -hmm. other part of that is this sort of blurring of reality from reality TV, entertainment from what's yeah. actually has import beyond entertaining us, right? Our government and, and what's happening with, with the presidency is more important than just being I think the, entertaining the to specific people. thing about John Oliver is he always does a long segment that is almost humorous investigative reporting. I mean, he has, he, he's done the things on things subjects that I think his audience wouldn't find interesting, like native advertising in you know newspapers, magazines, and on TV. But I mean, they are meticulous. He, he, the fact that he can make such biting humor out of these subjects, I think, is a, a, a special talent. And I know my students, for instance, uh, 
at Harvard are, you know, that he's, he's their North Star for uh, more and more. Um, how about, right again, bowling up the middle? Let, let's start with David and come back towards me. Uh, well, the question is about the biggest lesson that, that I've taken away from this. And sort of, for me, it's that we can't, uh, someone talked about it earlier, we can't seem like we're at war with the administration. I mean, that's very tempting at times with, because they are behaving in ways that other administrations have not. But what we, the way we show our value and the way we attract new people to understand our value is through our work. Um, and if other people want to have battles with the administration, that's fine. But I think to, to, to make the story about us and our outrage and how we're being treated differently, which takes the focus away from the actual things we're reporting and, sh and showing, I think is a mistake. So I think that to show our work and, and to be honest about what we know and don't, but not to, not to sort of be, uh, to make ourselves sort of the story or the, the victims of something. Um, I think that's a really important lesson. Amy, how about you? Um, I think during the campaign, a lot of our coverage was driven by erroneous data instead of on the ground reporting. I think, you know, we've started to self-correct, but the idea of having a lot more correspondents who don't just like go to Staten Island and find the guy who thinks Trump's, you know, healthcare plan is great, but to really go out in the country and have correspondents who understand are talking to these voters in cold country, are talking to voters in any inner cities, and can really reflect, you know, how they feel in their voices versus like talking to the same, you know, political pundits and throwing in a poll. Um, I think we've done a good job of sort of self-correcting on that. I would say humility, sort of, you know, what Amy's talking about in terms of not believing that we know everything, uh, you know sort of questioning the, the premises and the things that, have, that we've thought to have been truisms about politics for a long time. Um, and also, I think, just sort of you know, trusting your senses. As a journalist, you have to sort of look around and, and see what, what is right in front of you. And sometimes, you know, I went to a lot of Trump rallies and would still sit there and say, well, he's not going to win because look at the polls. But you would still be able to see this enthusiasm right there in front of you from these people, and you could turn on the TV and see that it, Hillary Clinton was not attracting I the same thing. I said, I'm not thing. covering, a, it doesn't feel like I'm covering a winning campaign. Right. And mm -hmm. I was like, but the upshot is there 97% Exactly, and I think I, humility, and I think also just trusting your senses to sort of see what's in front of you. A lot of people like to say, oh, this isn't who we are as a country. And, and in sports, they say, well, scoreboard. You know, you're, we're a better team than this. Right. Well, you're losing 21 to seven I know that. This is who we are right now. As a country, and I think you have to sort of look around, understand that there are a lot of people who live in completely separate worlds, and in terms of bringing all those people together as citizens of one country, it, it, that's a difficult experiment. That's sort of what we're all in the middle of, and I think you have to be able to, to mm -hmm. say that and see that and rather than just say, you know rely on these truisms about. Or data. Right. And to pick up on that for me, I mean, the biggest takeaway I've had is as journalists, we need to broaden our willingness to accept what is within the bounds of possibility. I mean, a bazillion years, I never would have imagined that Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, you know, three years ago would wind up in the White House. I mean, it just wouldn't have registered as anything other than a bad joke. And yet, here we are. So. <laughs> Thank all of you, and I thank you. It's fantastic. Don't forget the book signing. Oh, yeah. <laughs>